0: Hello everyone, it's February 23rd, 2021. Well, there's another rover on Mars. It really never gets old. Watching that EDL was mesmerizing and intense, and I hope to see more in the future. Well, let's break down that flawless touchdown and liftoff. The tower. Welcome to episode two ninety-eight of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David.
1: I'm Ben, and I'm Dennis. It's not spacey and it's kinda it's kind of very me-centric. I'm working on a Circuit Python project. It's gonna be uh, like a D&D character sheet helper kind of thing. Basically, you build your own character sheet, but you load it into my little device, and it's got a big e-ink display that shows all of your stats. Um, and then it's got a smaller, low power display, but it's a faster refresh than, uh, than an e-ink. <laughs> it's called a, uh, a sharp hybrid TFT, I think. But basically, uh, each of these displays have got a bunch of buttons next to them. And so I display all of your stats and you press the button next to the stat and it rolls. Uh, it, it does a role for you Ooh. with whatever rules you have, um, set mm-hmm. up on your character mm-hmm. sheet. And it, it's mostly just a calculator. Um, it doesn't really do, <laughs> doesn't do much more than that. But that's okay because yeah. um I started it because I hate rolling dice and then having to sit there and count on my fingers like a preschooler because I just, I, I'm really bad at arithmetic. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. I get when you do something like that and then it's kind of like you kind of like level up sort of in your ability, you know what I mean? Like in what you can accomplish yeah. with a particular skill set. And so um that's always fun when you can do something like that.
1: And I'll tell you what, the rewards of just getting faster at a task. Is nice, mm-hmm. but it's not nearly as rewarding as the much more occasional. Hey, I can do this, and I didn't used to be able to do this. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> Perseverance has landed! Yay! Yay! Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, so I watch. I think we were watching it in real time. Um, well, with a 13 minute delay, right? But um, <laughs> but that can't be avoided. So yeah, I watched it and you know, it was just like every other occasion where like, you know, a big event like this happens, which is that my heart rate goes up and I get all, I don't know, I just, you know, it's ah. just very, it's just very exciting. Like I. It's pretty much just like watching a rocket launch. You just kind of become very excited and your palms get a little bit sweaty. So how was your viewing experience? Was it similar?
1: Well, I, I watched the off-nominal stream. I don't know what streams you guys were on.
0: I bounced back and forth. I did watch mostly that one, though. Yeah. In fact, it, I saw you in the chat there. It so was, I was thinking, oh, there's good. Men. The
1: off-nominal <laughs> stream was very good. I uh, messaged Anthony Colangelo on Twitter and I was like, Hey, um, what's your streaming setup look like? Cause this is really good. And basically, um, the answer was yes, because it's very expensive. Like that, obviously that's not uh. what he said, but like, that's what I heard. I was like, Oh, okay. It's, it's because you guys are acting like professionals. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it.
0: <laughs> nice. I didn't. I didn't know it could cost a lot of money to just do a streaming thing. You know, like well, I mean, you got to set up some stuff. Yeah. But...
1: So, so Anthony's got a very expensive camera set up. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's it's a DSLR. Um, um, okay. So it's you know, it's not just a single use webcam, but it's an expensive camera. And then he's capturing it with an HDMI capture card, which is very expensive. Like those those things are are much more expensive than you'd expect for just plugging a cable into your computer. Mm. And then, um, they don't use OBS. They use a, uh, a relatively expensive streaming, uh, suite. And then, um, yeah, for the, for the interface, they actually have like a custom built web app that, the streaming suite captures and displays on screen for the, for the actual graphics.
2: No, that was great looking. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. get a chance to watch theirs though. I, uh, I was lucky I got to see it at all. Um, oh, really? I had my, my second uh, vaccine uh, shot, my Yay! booster scheduled. And so, and then I had a meeting at two o'clock local and it like landed, I think like one fifty six local. So I managed to just get back home, get onto my computer start seeing everything blowing up on discord right, and right. the internet and I was like oh well I have time before my meeting and I managed to catch it and so I'm uh, very happy about that yeah the the booster definitely knocked me on my butt the next day though but um happily I'm back to hundred <laughs> percent so I mean the landing itself I mean you know everyone's been covering it really good but the uh, the upshot is that you know we've got some we have got some good pictures Twitter at least you know which is kind of where I am it, it Definitely, um, people are a lot, uh, complaining. Uh, they're complaining a lot, quite, <laughs> quite a bit about it. They're very complaining. Um, which I mean, that, you know, they're talking about analogous missions and how you had so much more at this point. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the response though has been that, you know, it seems like they're saving it for a uh, press conference that will, you know, is, is Monday, you know, February, uh, 22nd. So that's going to be the day before this episode drops, but the day after we're recording. So the day after us right now as we're talking and um i I have to imagine though that's when you're going to get all the you know the high definition footage of the descent um and a lot of other stuff and you know what what they gave us so far i I mean i'm more than happy with it i mean getting to see uh, you know a sky crane in action um you know even if it's a still and not the video i think that's amazing the you know the the image of the surface that's great um, but it, I mean, we've seen those kind of pictures before, Yeah, uh, but it's really that, that shot of the, uh, the vehicle descending. I think that's going to be one that's going to go into like, you know, the mm-hmm. all time hall of fame, yep. you know, recognize instantly recognizable, uh, pictures for any kind of
1: space fan. Well, heck, I want to jump forward in our notes real quick and talk about the descent photo that MRO got. There was that really Amazing. Like, how did we actually pull this off image of Curiosity descending under its parachute? And I think that was the first, uh, the first photo of that type, right? Like we had never photographed another uh, Mars probe landing like that. But yeah, so in in terms of uh iconic space images, it was really cool to see um Perseverance dangling under a parachute because you know, we we had already seen that with another vehicle and uh, you know, to to some extent the lack of novelty there kind of uh dilutes the impact just just like the tiniest tiniest amount. But but yeah, it's it's really cool that this this uh, format can now be sort of iconic, uh, maybe just to nerds like us and not to the general public in the, in the same way as the descent footage absolutely will.
2: And, and Mike in the chat points out something that we, we didn't know. Um, we, we, we were both familiar with uh, seeing Curiosity uh, being imaged from orbit. Uh, during it's set under parachute, but that also, the first time that happened was with Phoenix in 2008. Phoenix. Yeah. And so that's pretty wild. Thanks, uh, Mike. And I was going to say, because the Phoenix one is pretty wild when you see the, um, uh, the crater, uh, you know, uh, in the image, uh, when you kind of zoom out. But that was what I was going to say. The thing that I think really separates this, uh, MRO image of, uh, Perseverance versus Curiosity is that you can see how clearly it's uh, Um, Jezero Crater, right? Or Jezero Crater, depending uh on, you know, which pronunciation you want to use. And it's just, you can see the delta just so clearly on, but you see it from an oblique angle that you don't really typically Mm -hmm. get. And it was evidently because the uh, MRO had to do a little bit of, you know, pitching upwards and doing a hard roll to be able to actually be pointing in the right spot at the right time. Mm -hmm. And so it's I thought that was really, really cool.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, Mike Mike in the chat uh, gave us a Twitter link that uh, this image is absolutely going in our show notes. Um, (laughs) And it's it's actually a tweet from uh, the High Rise uh, Twitter account. And it's all three, um, Phoenix, Mm. Curiosity and Perseverance uh, all together. And it's really good that that makes me very very happy
2: we've gotten good at that apparently
1: (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's really interesting isn't it that like this is now a thing that we can do you know fairly reliably um and and like all of the coordinate system translations that you have to do and all the precise timing and it's you know it's it's doable you know we're we're pretty good at this it turns out
2: (laughs) so so you know the 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 spacecraft, right, it, you know, it did its uh, sky crane descent, um, you know, after, you know, parachute and, uh, you know, having the, the heat shell. Yeah, slow it down. Um, and it landed uh, 1.7 kilometers from uh, the center of its target, uh, uh, which leaves it about two kilometers away from uh, one of the two uh, deltas that are uh, spilling into Yezero and the in particular the delta that it was targeting. So that's, you know, close uh, enough or that you're not going to be landing on potentially dangerous terrain and um, yet being able to like explore, you know, the, the general like uh, region, you know, and um, what was pretty awesome right this the whole big thing about landing in uh, a place that's very far from a parking lot which is where right the uh, the engineers for this mission would love to land all the time uh, <laughs> there were areas right around it with as much as like you know a four percent chance of failure if it were to you know come down there but using that uh, terrain relative navigation system that you know is kind of a real big deal um, yeah. it was able to not only place it down I think it was 30 uh, some uh, meters from the nearest uh, hazard. But also, mm-hmm. uh, so such a smooth landing. It only had a one point two degree tilt upon landing, and so
1: really good So, stuff. so that's a one point two degree tilt of the ground, or a one point two degree tilt under the sky crane
2: on the ground. Yeah, right, right, okay. wheels on yeah. the ground. One point two. Yeah. So, so that means you know, very, very flat surface.
1: Right, right, right. And, and it, it's really fun that yeah, we did indeed see um, TRN do a divert. <laughs> 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 the it we had the capability and we actually had to use it. And that's, that's really cool. The future is now. So, so before we get off of uh, TRN real quick, Dave, who's actually in the chat right now, thank you, Dave, uh, wrote in with a a great little addition that I, I did, I did not realize this at all. So we've actually talked to folks from Massa on the show before. And, um, we were wondering last week, you know, ha- how much testing had ever, um, gone, you know, how, had we ever seen the TRN software actually fly in real life? Yeah, actually, that's what Zoe was doing. Uh, Mastin Space's uh, Zoe uh, platform. I, I don't know if Zombie and all, all the other uh, Mastin sisters um, were flying the same software, and I'm not sure if Zoe only flew the TRN software, and, and hopefully we'll be able to get some better answers to you folks in, in a couple of weeks. But um, basically, yeah. Zoe. Oh, it was zombie. I'm sorry. So it was, it was zombie that actually flew uh, a version of the TRN software that flew uh, on Perseverance this week. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it it had actually been flown on Earth, like actually flown and not just mm-hmm. simulated. So that that's, that's really wild. fantastic. Thank you for the extra info, Dave, that that totally missed me. I, th- I think the problem was that I didn't realize that terrain relative navigation is not a general technology name. It's a specific software name. Um so it's oh. it, it's it's it software. Yeah, it's it's a bad name if it's that general that I didn't recognize it but <laughs> that, that's okay.
0: Uh, I guess the general would be like smart navigation or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. know.
1: Uh yeah, right. I I nav.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go.
1: TRN 2000
0: coming soon to a rover near you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So, I saw a pretty good map of, you know, the places where it could and could not land, and it does look like it's landing in a much more ambitious part mm-hmm. of Mars, just because there's so many places where it cannot set down, and it really picked this, kind of like this little sliver of a spot where it could put down. So, um, yeah, I would say that, the, you know, the software worked very, very well, because um, this is something that I'm sure could never have been done on Curiosity that just wouldn't be possible. They would need a much larger, flatter, nice, you know, big, flat stretch of Mars.
2: Or you just be rolling the die significantly yeah you know
0: you don't want to do that yeah the entry, descent, and landing, I ha- I have to say as I was watching it, I don't know about you, but it went by very quickly, which of course it does, mm-hmm. but it seemed even shorter than that to me. Like, oh, it was all kind of like it all started up and then it was all over, mm-hmm. you know, within about 10 minutes, obviously, um, which is about how long it takes. But still, it just felt like, oh, that, you know, like that was it. That was just like putting a rocket into orbit, except we were landing a you oh, know, right. a giant <laughs> rover down on Mars. Yeah. Like it's a very quick process. And I learned what the call out Tangle Delta means, which I had a suspicion when I first out, I was like what does that mean oh touchdown mm-hmm. um, and there was some debate about exactly what that means and as it turns out it doesn't mean that the vehicle is safely on the ground and it's ready to go it means it has that it has been put down on the ground but uh, the sky crane has not yet detached and mm. I guess gone and dished itself somewhere
1: kind of fun that the TD call comes before the landing sequence is complete right yeah, yeah.
2: oh god could you imagine if the, the uh, descent vehicle flips the rover because the tethers don't mm. sever or something
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I still don't remember. How do they separate? Is it just little, is it like little pyrotechnic bolts or something? I assume, that's what uh, it, I don't know.
1: It, it might be pyrotechnic bolts, but I believe it's a pyrotechnic cutter. It actually cuts the line. So oh. I, think, I think the rover wanders around with a little tiny bit of umbilical cord sticking mm-hmm. out of it.
0: I've watched the animations and, and I remember with curiosity, you know, they put in these little sound effects and it sounds like something that's, you know, kind of being detonated, so I just kind of figured that well, that's what it was. Well, it might
2: actually be something we, we hear for real when they, yeah. you know, release the oh. uh, the the microphone data along with the um, video.
1: Yeah, <laughs> presumably the lines are slack at that point, so it'll be, yeah, I don't know, that'll be really interesting.
0: So that brings up a good point. So the microphone was operational during the descent, because I, I didn't know that. I thought it was just um, like other telemetry, and obviously some images being uh, being taken. But it would be cool to have sound.
2: Yeah. I mean, you might be able to hear the, I mean, so much of it, you know, like the, 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 the rockets firing, you know, on the descent stage. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I've never heard, uh, what it sounds like to sky crane something onto Mars before, so I'm not
1: entirely yeah. sure what to well, expect. Yeah, I know. <laughs> a very, a very small number of people have. Um, yeah, Sty says, I thought it had a short drop. That would make sense because you don't want to risk the lines getting tangled up. But in that case, wouldn't, tango delta come before they cut the cables and from my understanding that's Mm -hmm. not the they yeah like uh like dave says it's the contact light so the wheels touch and then they cut um and i don't think that they have the the control precision to be able to touch the wheels but not really do much settling onto the uh the shock absorbers as it were inside the the bogey.
2: So one thing to keep in mind, you know, with the images we have, you know, as of now, before the uh, Monday uh, <laughs> press conference, is that um, the data is coming back from the uh, low gain uh, UHF ultra high frequency antenna, uh, which is different from the low gain antenna. So there is an X-band low-gain antenna, but there's also a uh, low-gain UHF one. As a result, this you know this relies on bent pipe relaying back to Earth, right? It routes, it goes up to an orbiter, and then the data then is transmitted from the orbiter using much more powerful uh, antennas uh, back to Earth. Uh, and the high-gain uh, antenna right now is is currently stowed, and um, uh, or sorry, it was it was stowed when those images were sent back, but over the weekend it's you know uh, been you know. Uh, moved into its operating position. And so uh, uh, that's kind of... uh, They're probably looking at this now uh, before we uh, see it in the... um uh, press conference, and so uh, that that that's direct to Earth communication, and so that'll be you know uh, coming right right to us. And on top of that is that the the images that have been taken so far are from you know hazard cameras uh, and kind of like you know context like cameras, you know that are not uh, meant for you know doing really high resolution imaging, but rather to kind of give you a sense of what's going on around the uh, spacecraft. Because right, you can't. We always see these three dimensional or these third person points of view of spacecraft, and it kind of I know I, I like to bring this up. A lot is that that's not what you actually, you know, we don't get to see that, right? We only get to get the the telemetry and the images yeah. and the data that are uh, sent back to us.
1: Yeah, Curiosity is is a little special because um, it does get to take selfies that look like third person views. But yeah, <laughs> you're. You, <laughs> yeah, I'm does. not saying that to say that 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 you're wrong. I'm just being snarky. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, that is a good point of clarification. And I love to ask the students, well, wh- where's the you know, where's the camera? You don't see the. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know the the arm taking it. What happened? Yeah, and uh, it's it's tough. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to guess how they how they did that <laughs> until I learned. You know.
1: So yeah, the uh, uh, the has cams are also nice because they don't have to deploy. They're they're good to go. You can take photos mm. with them before you move anything. Um, mm. And we did actually get um, before we recorded this show. We've we've already gotten um, dust dust cover free nav cam photos, which is really really nice. Um, the Mars memes are strong on the internet, uh, this week. Uh, there's hmm. already been a Bernie on Mars. Um, you know, Bernie <laughs> like, at the inauguration, like yeah. it's just,
2: <laughs> I don't know. In some ways, the re- I don't know. I don't know what the star of the show is, whether it's the sample return, <laughs> whether it's, you know, taking carbon dioxide and ISRUing it into oxygen or if it's, you know, an aircraft on Mars.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately the, uh, the sample return, um, it, it's not looking good. Um, we're seeing more and more, um, budget issues that are trying to get in the way, but hopefully we'll do it and hopefully we'll do it sooner rather than later. But, uh, you're right. One of the undisputed, um, cast of characters that we're very excited to see is Ingenuity, the, uh, the helicopter and, um, Spectrum, uh, IEEE has a publication called Spectrum, uh, which we've actually mentioned on the show before. And uh, Spectrum has this really fantastic article this week um, where they went and interviewed one of the uh, Ingenuity team leads. Th- there's a link to it in the show notes. Go read it. But he- here are the highlights. Um, this really, really delights me because uh, Ingenuity is, you know, a high risk Uh, tech demo. So they're building it as cheap as they possibly can. And so we got some details here that I hadn't heard before. So it runs on a Snapdragon 801 CPU, uh, which is basically a a cell phone CPU. And, um, what's really, uh, insane is, you know, we always talk about how, oh, my cell phone has, you know, an order of magnitude more processing power than the computer that we use to land on the moon and da, 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 da. And why, and, and because of that, why can't my toaster not burn my toast or, you know, whatever it is? Um, but in this case, Ingenuity has orders of magnitude more processing power, um, than Perseverance does. And, and that's really important because, um, Ingenuity it is a flight vehicle. So you really need to be able to process data and lots of data as quickly as possible. Um, so they're using this uh, 801. Um, their guidance loop, uh, run 500 times a second. Uh, so that's, you know, 500 Hertz, uh, program, just, uh, collecting data, cleaning the data, using it to predict your next move and then starting over. Um, and, and so they're doing a 500 Hertz guidance loop on Mars, like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, they are doing, um, uh, monocular optical tracking of the ground. Basically, um, they've got an optical mouse sticking out of the bottom of the vehicle. And that, uh, that video, they actually process it 30 frames a second. It is, uh, non-mapping. They're just picking, um, a couple of features. For each frame and then comparing their movement. Um, but they're, they're doing that at, at 30 frames a second. It's really crazy. And so, like I said, you know, these are all like off the shelf parts as much as possible. Um, including their laser altimeter, which they literally bought online from SparkFun.
2: <laughs>
1: I, uh, like for real, I went to SparkFun just to look at, uh, you know, what laser altimeters they had on offer and, I don't think that this would make an entire interview, but like, I really want to call spark fun uh, and just say, Hey, did you guys know when this order came in? Like, did you recognize the Pasadena address as being mm-hmm. important? Um, do you happen to know who picked the order? Can we talk to them? Like, did, what did it feel like grabbing a laser altimeter that was going to mark? I mean, like, it's just, it's crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, they've got a couple of cameras, um, the monocular tracking camera, uh, is actually a VGA camera. Like it, you know, VGA, the really horrible serial looking connector with the two (laughs) screws that you have to struggle to plug into the Mm -hmm. back of your monitor. Yeah. It uses VGA. Um, and then they also have an additional camera, um, that's just for pretty photos, basically. And it's a 13 megapixel cell phone camera. Just a cell phone camera. So they're, they're doing, uh, optical tracking. They considered doing hazard avoidance. Um, but they just didn't have time to implement that. And, and it makes sense. I mean, that they really, uh, are running as fast as they can to, to do this mission. Um, and hazard avoidance is so intense. I mean, like it really takes a lot of work.
2: Cause the idea, right, is that this, you know, if you're in charge of instruments on, you know, perseverance proper, you know what I mean? The idea of adding this helicopter, right, had a little mm. bit of pushback from some people. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Because it adds, you know, potential issues for the overall mission. But um, yeah. they generously, you know, have kind of, you know, they've come to an agreement that they've got 30 days to basically, you know, do what they want to do. And
1: so, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's really interesting because not only is there potential danger from, you know, a helicopter flying into your very expensive rover, but um, they're having to dedicate resources. Uh, I mean, mm. talk about, mm-hmm. uh, bent pole, right? Or, or bent, bent pipe. pipe. <laughs> is that, yeah. Talk about bent pipe. This is, uh, I'm assuming that curiosity would be talking directly to Earth at that point, but like, there's a possibility that, you know, Ingenuity could talk to Perseverance and Perseverance could talk to MRO and MRO could call back home to Earth. <laughs> um, that, that would be fun. I'll um, your pipe. Yeah. But pipe three. The bendiest. Um, so yeah, if you think that hazard avoidance sounds a little dodgy to not have, uh, it's not. What is dodgy, um, and this is in the best, like, I'm excited sense of the word, is that they have zero sensor redundancy. They have three sensors, uh, that they need for flight, uh, camera, the spark fun laser altimeter. <laughs> Guys, they bought a, they bought a laser altimeter from spark fun. How It's just, <laughs> so the yeah, right. The, the camera, the laser altimeter, and then also an accelerometer. If any one of those three fails, they cannot fly. Uh, they have no backups for any of them. And so if one of them fails, they basically step back to the last frame that had good data and land as fast as they can. So yeah, we've talked about this on the show before. We're, you know, kind of going, okay, well, what science can they do with this? And they, the team in this interview, it's, it's very clear. The team does not care about doing science at this point. They're like, we're going to be lucky to fly once. We have 30 days. We're hoping to get f- up to five flights in. But, you know, it, forget science. Like the the best thing that we're going to get out of this is a flight. The second best thing is some nice photos from the cell phone camera. So, you know, going into hard nerdery, this is the first Linux OS to go to Mars. Uh, other,
0: Yeah. I find that kind of surprising because I'm wondering what other passengers yeah. have used.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing is you, you would think, okay, well, you know, if you're sending a rover to Mars, you probably fly with some you know, some version of Linux. No, actually uh, they all use specialized hardware. Um, NASA in particular, as far as I know, all of their Mars landers have all used river OS. Um, yeah. We I,
0: talked about that before. I,
1: yeah. I, I hmm. could be wrong. They they might, have, but I mean, it's, you know, it's all basically the same, uh, the same mm-hmm. OS that flies, but um, ingenuity is not only flying uh, Linux um, it's also the, the control software that they're flying is actually open source. Um, NASA published it a few years ago. It's called F prime. You can find it on GitHub. And what's really cool is, uh, F prime. It's basically, um, circuit Python, uh, but for space. Uh, they use it for CubeSats and all, all sorts of things that need guidance. Um, but it, it actually can run Python modules, <laughs> which is bizarre. I, I, highly doubt that any actual Python is, is on Mars right now. Um, I'm guessing that, you know, it's, it's, uh, available as I I looked through their repo real quick and they've got a lot of really good documentation, but it's too much documentation for me to run through in the short amount of time I was actually researching this. So, um, I I don't, I, I would be surprised if there was any actual Python involved, um, in flying, uh, ingenuity, but you know, it's, it's this open source software that you can go and download and use on potentially a quadcopter or something like i don't I don't know hmm. But yeah, we we kind of touched on this. Uh, there is not going to be an extended mission, uh, which is something that I had been hoping for. Um, they yeah. got 30 days. They're hoping to get five flights in. But what's insane is they've only planned the first three. Uh Flights four and five, they don't know what they're going to do. And it's kind of because they're just hoping to get through the first flight. The second and third flights are just like, okay, what do we do next? What do we do next? Next? No clue. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, uh, discussed, uh, some possibilities, maybe doing like a long distance flight flying, you know, a hundred meters away from the Rover and back. Uh, th- they said maybe we'll just fly in a big circle. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. They, uh, are not even thinking to the point, like the interviewer from IEEE said, you know, what? Well, if you have this fifth flight and everything else has gone well, like, are are you going to try to do something crazy, like something potentially destructive, something that could, you know, result in loss of of the helicopter? And the engineer that he's interviewing is like, I don't know, uh, may, maybe <laughs> we we haven't gotten that far. Like, it truly sounded like they really hadn't uh, hadn't even considered it. Um, <laughs> so that's it, it's it's going to be very exciting. I, I'm looking forward to a lot of joy, collect collecting a lot of joy from uh, from this tiny little. Uh, vehicle.
0: So let's say that the vehicle lasts the whole thirty days. Can they go beyond that, or do they just not have the budget to? It's the time and
2: resources from the yeah. rest of the mission that's the limiting factor. So they. Yeah, like in that article, they even say, like the interviewer says, like, and so you potentially that the rover would just drive away from a perfectly good helicopter and just leave it there. And he's like, yep.
1: Yeah, they they said uh, at the end of the 30 days, if uh, if Ingenuity has done everything perfectly and is sitting there and is a happy little um, fully functional helicopter, they're just going to drive away from it. There, there's there, no more time is going to be devoted to flying it, and and yeah, I mean it makes sense. Um, in the, yeah. in the there's, future, there's we'll... diminishing
2: returns that mm-hmm. you, you that you wouldn't get from you know a science you know mm-hmm. based yep. uh, mission. Yep. And in this one, you know, you got a good month of hopefully five flights. You know, and and like I said, like in this co- in this case, right, it, it performed well during all that, and so that's that's going to be a lot of engineering and you know programming data that they'll be able to go and take back to then outfitting one you know like some of the versions we speculated about last week you know that'll actually have scientific instruments on board you know mm-hmm. i just want to see ingenuity on the ground with yeah. being image from the rover
0: <laughs> yeah so yeah with any luck we'll have more information next week and we'll probably be discussing this further well i'm sure that we will be so this is not uh-huh. the end of our perseverance coverage
2: <laughs> for sure
0: So we're back to three short and suites this week. What is the first one, Dennis?
2: Well, first up, China prepares to launch first segment of space station. Work has begun on assembling the rocket that will carry the first module of China's first space station, the Chinese Large Modular Space Station. Following on the space laboratories Tiangong 1 and 2, the station's core, Tianhe, or Harmony of the Heavens, will be launched on a Long March 5B, with China space program watchers estimating a launch in mid to late April. The 16.6 meter long, 4.2 meter diameter core will be inserted directly into LEO with a 370 kilometer apogee and a 41 degree inclination, and will provide regenerative life support and living space for three taikonauts. China plans to build the station over 11 launches across 2021 and 2022, with three of those carrying modules, four carrying cargo, and four being crude.
1: all right next spacex demonstrates that more data collection leads to more system knowledge
0: Mm, surprise
1: right starlink 19 the sixth flight of b-1059 ended in splashdown this week on-screen telemetry indicates a successful staged startup of all three engines during re-entry then a roughly 25 percent loss of thrust roughly 14 seconds into the burn This suggests one engine produced reduced thrust but did not experience a complete shutdown. After re-entry burn cutoff, lots of residual combustion can be seen. NASA is investigating ahead of the launch of Crew-2. The live stream data appears consistent with a locks valve being stuck halfway open. If that situation occurred on Miko, recontact with a dragon or a second stage is a possibility. It's funny because what I saw on like Reddit was basically people going, "Ah, eh, it's on landing, it doesn't matter. Ah, eh, it's on landing, it doesn't matter." It, you know, oh, the huh. primary mission was successful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> what is the issue? Because you know that that's why i wrote the headline the way i did is because initially mm-hmm. i just said it was a failure well no the the point is we're collecting data and we have more knowledge what do we do with that knowledge what does that knowledge t- you know what does that data tell us how does that translate yeah and if if it's an issue like that you know if you have a residual thrust that's mm-hmm. that's not a good thing <laughs> it's a really mm-hmm. bad thing
0: yeah it's just good that it happened when it did
1: yeah like david and
2: i like to talk about not wanting to fly on a a maiden spacecraft necessarily maybe just put the crude ones on boosters that have only flown once or twice. Yeah. not like what is this the fifth or sixth this the, is like the sixth,
0: sixth? sixth, or, sixth? Yep.
2: yeah that was, <laughs> just give me two maybe three and then <laughs> stick me up there
0: yeah All right, uh, next up, test flight of Starliner slips to April. So previously scheduled for March 25th, the second uncrewed test flight of Boeing's Starliner spacecraft has been pushed back to no earlier than April 2nd. Recently, replaced avionics units on the vehicle have been damaged by a power surge during final checkouts, causing the delay. This second test mission was scheduled after the first mission failed to reach the ISS, suffering from extensive software-related issues. The company is still working on testing the software of the spacecraft, though NASA has stated that 95% of its recommendations have been completed. Boeing is confident in its new launch target despite another more terrestrial obstacle it faces, severe winter weather that has led to widespread power outages in Houston. Moving on then, let's let's do uh, this weekend's space flight history. Uh, we have three winners, one of whom is a first-time guesser, uh, and that would be Radoslav Petrushevsky. Then we have the Greek, and then Thomas Formanic and Stygarfield. Uh, Stye in the chat, as he's often known on the show. So yeah, the clue was European cars may be small, dot, dot, dot. And the event is on the 1st of March, 2002, and that is the launch of Envisat, which is the world's largest civilian Earth observation satellite. So not just a civilian satellite, but a civilian Earth observation satellite. Um, but I believe it might actually qualify for just largest civilian satellite. I don't think I found anything larger. And that was a largely European endeavor. So that's why we say European cars might be small, but uh, their satellites are not. So <laughs> it weighs 8,211 kilograms. And for context, the International Space Station is 419,000 kilograms, which you know, is like give or take uh, the Hubble Space Telescope is 11,100 kilograms, a little bit heavier, but not by much. And then the Tiangong space stations are just over that weight at 8,500 kilograms. And that's both the Tiangong one and two. And there's like a 100 kilogram difference. So... So pretty much everything that is larger than this satellite is a space station, a <laughs> space shuttle, the Hubble Space Telescope, or a some kind of a, you know, transfer vehicle. As far as satellites themselves, with the exception of Hubble, I think there aren't any others. So it is very, very large. And the dimensions at launch, because they had to pack it into the payload fairing, uh, was 10.5 meters by 4.57 meters, um, and that would be, you know, squared, so... Um, Two of those axes are the same, I guess, or approximately. But once it's deployed, it is 26 meters by 10 meters by 5 meters, so quite a bit bigger. Yeah, very large, and we'll talk about the payload fairing that they had to get for that. This operates on 6.5 kilowatts with a 5 by 14 meter solar panel. During its eclipse, or once it's on the night side of the planet, uh, it it operates on 8 ampere hours or amp hours NICAD batteries. So this thing was actually, just to give some context as to what this satellite does, uh, this is, as I said, an Earth Observation Satellite and it's meant to take all kinds of metrics of the Earth as far as, you know, like temperature, all kinds of stuff having to do with the atmosphere Um, and we'll talk about some of that instrumentation in a second. But basically, this is a successor to the European remote sensing satellites. And there were two of those. And we've talked about a different constellation that Europe currently has, which is uh, the Sentinel satellite constellation. So this is the one that kind of falls in the middle of those. But of course, the big difference is this is just a single satellite. I guess this is why it had to be so big. They kind of put everything onto one vehicle as opposed to, you know, a series of satellites. Um, They each had different tasks. So this was launched into a sun-synchronous orbit of 790 kilometers and it had a period of 101 minutes and a repeat interval of 35 days. So after 35 days, you know, it will find itself over the same spot at the the same local time. And it was launched aboard an Arian 5. To date, I checked and I believe that this is still the single largest satellite that it has launched. It has launched more by mass, but that's, you know, two or more satellites. I
2: see. It has
0: launched ATVs, which do weigh more, but those, again, Mm. are transport vehicles. So I kind of don't count those because they're not satellites. They're, you know, Know, their own sure, little, sure, you know, sure. like their their own little delivery spacecraft, and I imagine some of that mass has to do with what's inside of them, not necessarily the weight of the vehicle itself. So I guess it still doesn't quite count. Yeah, so I was going to say,
2: I don't know, yeah, if, if you if you stuff an ATV with stuff, that's
0: yeah, it's going to be pretty massive. Do you count
2: the the equipment
0: as part of the mass of the spacecraft? Once they're loaded, um, an ATV is around, I believe, like ten to eleven thousand kilograms.
2: You should talk like they should have like the dry. Mass equivalent of an yeah. ATV, but obviously the the mass in there is often the payload or the the, the equipment is dry, so maybe mm-hmm. just the um the bare mass of the ATV.
0: Okay, so, yes. Yeah, so the dry mass of an ATV is about ten thousand kilograms, uh, but the launch mass, depending on which mission, obviously can be as much as twenty thousand. So you can you know put quite a oh. bit in there. So yeah, the dry mass is still a, l- a little bit more than NVSAT but not by a huge amount. In order to fit this thing on a rocket, they had to use uh, a 17 meter payload fairing. That was the first one to be launched with such a large fairing. I don't know if one's been used since, Um, but this was launched from Kuru and it was launched north and that was the first time that was done. And I guess, you know, just in order to get it into that polar orbit, that's what they had to do. I don't believe you can launch south, you'd be flying over land because um, just like given its location in South America, you have to go north to do polar orbits. And so yeah, let's talk a little bit about the instrumentation. This is not an exhaustive list, um, but some of the cooler things is one called Skiamaki. I think that's how you say that. And this is the Scanning Imaging Absorption Spectrometer for Atmospheric Cartography. Okay, so that's a weird acronym, but yeah, it's called Skiamaki. I'm guessing. That maps trace gases in the troposphere and the stratosphere. So again, this is doing largely what something like Sentinel would be doing today. Another instrument on board, which is really cool, and I've never heard of this being done before, is something called GOMOS, which is uh, the global ozone monitoring by occultation of stars. So this basically observes stars as they set behind the Earth. It makes observations as they descend through the atmosphere. By doing so, it can actually measure the distribution of gases at various altitudes, which is pretty neat. I see. So they look at the
2: starlight and look for ozone absorption in the spectrum?
0: Right. And pretty much as it descends, you will get different measurements. And that just has to do, I guess, with the vertical distribution of ozone, which of course, you know, does change with altitude. Mm. So like you're not looking down out the Earth. You're like looking
2: Yeah, at stars near the horizon.
0: Yeah, you're looking right through the atmosphere, looking at the starlight. And that's something that they can measure between 20 and 80 kilometers. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty neat to use a star to measure ozone in the Earth's atmosphere and get a pretty good idea of um, its distribution by altitude.
2: Yeah. I hear about that on other worlds, not on... Earth, yeah, you know?
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty clever idea. Hmm. And then another instrument on board uh, is uh, the MWR, which is a microwave radiometer. So this measures water vapor in the atmosphere. So pretty straightforward there. Um, I didn't, there's, I mean, a whole lot more to it, but I didn't uh, take all those notes. Then there's uh the ATSER. I'm not sure if that's like an acronym, um, but uh, this is the Advanced Along Track Scanning Radiometer. And that can measure the sea surface temperatures uh, in the visible and infrared spectra. Basically, you're taking sea surface temperatures by measuring the infrared coming off of the surface of the sea. This is something that, again, satellites right now that do the same thing. And I should call attention to a website where you can get a whole lot more information because this is kind of neat. So you can tell that this is not just, you know, like another satellite. There is a website that uh, we will have in the show notes. And it kind of functions sort of like what, uh, and I don't know what the official website is for the Hubble Space Telescope, but there's like a website for that. And so there's a website for this because... um, um, this satellite has taken so much data, and I guess just because it's kind of a pride or a uh, what do you what would you call it? You know, a large project for Europe that they kind of you uh-huh. know gave this its own website, and it's pretty neat. Um, and it has all kinds of information. And, you know, all kinds of information on uh, the various data and observations that it's made. More information on the instrumentation itself, the satellite, how it was built, and so on and so forth. Uh, So it does have its own little dedicated website that is still up and running. Of course, the satellite itself is not. Yeah, so contact with the satellite was lost on uh, the 8th of April, 2012. And the mission lifetime was supposed to have only been five years, and, you know, it did last ten, so... um, But still, they were expecting it to last quite a bit longer. Mm. Um, But what happened was uh, it did not report in during one of its passes over a ground station uh, in Sweden, which was the uh, Kiruna ground station, and uh, they lost contact, and then they tried to reestablish contact through other ground stations. They got nothing back. They even used a series of satellites that the French operate called the Pleiades Earth probes. And these are actually Earth observation satellites, but they were able to take imagery of the Envy set. So you found a pretty good image, Dennis. And uh, from looking at it, I don't I don't see anything. I mean, do you notice any damage that you can uh, tell by looking at that? But I didn't find any conclusion. Like, I, you know, they had pretty much just given up on it. Uh, so I don't think that they observed anything. They just lost contact. And then they said, screw it. Was <laughs> <There's> a <laughs> big expensive satellite. The conclusion after several weeks, because they had put together a team to try and recover this the satellite, couldn't do it. No contact was made, so they basically had to give up on it. You know, which is unfortunate because uh, this was. Obviously, a very expensive and very, you know, ambitious project, but they had met their goals, but they just, um, did meet them for as long as they would like because, um, the next European Earth observation satellites were not launched until 2014, and that was the Sentinel 1A satellite, which we've talked about before. I don't know how many are in orbit right now, but I think only like one or two. So Sentinel didn't launch until April of 2014 and they lost contact with Envisat um, in April of 2012. So there pretty much was a two-year gap. So this is a... You know, like obviously a very large satellite and it's in a 790 kilometer altitude orbit. So it's not going to come back down anytime too soon. And that's a big problem because uh, I feel like if anything is going to start an actual Kessler syndrome cascade, it's probably going to be this just because it's so big and it's so dense. It's just got a lot of stuff in it. Um, It's not like a spent stage, which is still, you Mm -hmm. know, pretty damn bad, uh, but I feel like this is worse, and it is at the top of a list. Um, in fact, it's the largest object besides, like, spent rocket stages, and most of those will probably come back much, much sooner. Um, this will not, however. So, it's expected to last about 150 years before it finally deorbits. orbits uh, so they need to bring it back down. In fact, twice a year, NVSAT comes within 200 meters of two cataloged objects, which are also space debris. So that's not good because that means that those objects do not have the ability to maneuver out of the way. And of course, this doesn't either. And that's kind of a scary situation. So they need to deorbit the satellite. And there is a project called E-deorbit. And I assume that the E stands for Europe. This is a project to deorbit a number of things. But at the top of the list is, of course, you know, the NVSAT because it's just so damn big. And they want to do that in 2025 and uh, they will either use a net or tentacles which are really more like, you know, mechanical arms and they will grab onto the satellite and then they will bring it back down from that point. um, Do some uh, deorbiting burns, I assume. I think most likely this will be brought back down and it will be possibly the first real satellite brought back down from orbit and that's to say not something that is, you know, kind of like a technology demonstration of Uh deorbiting something because there's a lot, there's like much smaller things that I assume they would try out first. But as far as getting a large piece of debris back down, I think this is the one that they want to get rid of. That's
2: the one that we should probably prioritize um yeah. <laughs> once we're done with uh Pathfinder demos and such.
0: <laughs> yep. Yes. Yeah, so that's NVSAT and next week is the second through the eighth of March. That's your time period. And what is the clue for that, Ben?
1: Yeah. Next week in nineteen ninety nine once you pop the fun don't start.
0: That's clever. I like it.
1: I really appreciate the generosity that you guys show where you judge mm-hmm. my clues to be clever before you even know what they're in reference to.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I just like the clue itself. Yeah. I don't know how how accurate it is with regard to what it, you know, the actual event is, but I do like once you pop the fun don't start.
2: That's the kind of dopey thing I would say when I'm, you know, gaming with my friends or something. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, next
0: week in 1999, once you pop the fun don't start. All right. And if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, so now let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just three events, one launch, and what is the first thing?
1: All right, so first up, we have some of my favorite things. We got EVAs coming up. So first are the preview briefings on NASA TV. Those preview briefings are happening on Wednesday the twenty fourth at two p.m. Eastern. So the the first spacewalk is going to be spacewalk seventy one. That's Kate Rubens and Victor Glover, and spacewalk seventy one is happening on Sunday, the 28th. Coverage begins at 4.30 a.m. Eastern Time. The Spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, We're looking at about six and a half hours. So I will be watching. I'll I'll have that running in the background while we're preparing for the show next week. Um, Then after that is Spacewalk 72 um, that's out of this week. We'll do our next episode before then, but just as a heads up, it's on Friday the 5th.
2: And in between those, we have our only launch of the week. Uh, this will be on February 27th or 28th, depending on where you live. Uh, this is a PSLV launch, the, uh, India's polar satellite launch vehicle uh, we will be taking Amazonia 1 along with uh secondary payloads from private Indian companies and uh what's really cool about this spacecraft is that Amazonia 1 is going to be the first uh, earth observation satellite uh fully built by Brazil and so keep an eye out for that at 05 or 04:53 GMT on uh, the 28th uh, or uh 11:53 p.m uh Eastern Standard Time on the 27th and it'll be launching out of uh, Satish Dolan Space Center.
0: And then finally just keep an eye out for the SN10 launch so obviously there's no exact date for this but um, it may launch uh, as early as next week which is to say the week that you're listening to this uh, most likely um, <laughs> so that is a distinct possibility we don't know but obviously just you know keep an eye out for that but I'm sure you know since it's such a big event chances are you'll probably find out by some other means you know an hour before it happens it at least that's how I find out. <laughs> that's how they always seem that's, to go, right? Yeah, that's how it goes with me. <laughs>
1: all right, those are your upcoming spaceflight
0: events. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9am Pacific, 12pm Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information, on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies
2: you can join our discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links we're Podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info
0: at theorbitalmechanics.com alright so that is it we will see you all next week on Orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you